0: helps when you hit the mute button. Sorry about that. And it's a gift to get to be with you and worship alongside of you this morning uh, and setting our minds and eyes on Jesus Christ. So we, we've been a part of something really cool. For the last year, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. So we, we began our journey through Matthew at the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving last year. So it's, it's literally been a whole year reading, studying through the Gospel of Matthew, which came to a close last week, and so as, as we wrap that up, what we're going to be doing over the next five Sundays, including today, is talking about Advent, and specifically Jesus is, and, and a series that looks at who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and why that matters to us. And so uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bible there to John chapter 1, we're actually going to be in John 1 over the next several weeks. There's so much to mine out from this passage of Scripture it's one of the Christ hymns, one of the, the four predominant passages in the New Testament that speaks specifically to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, why, why would we take the time to do a series called Jesus Is? Why would we take the time to focus on this over the next few weeks? Let me give you a few kind of purpose statements, if you will, that kind of help guide us over the next few weeks as we're together. The first is, we want to remember. I mentioned this earlier, we want to remember Christ. First advent, his first coming, his first arrival on this planet, with the purpose he came to save you and to save me, but not just that he came, but that he's coming again. That there should be an ache inside of every Jesus follower's heart, a longing to see our Savior face to face, a longing to be in his presence, a longing to be with God. You and I were made for God. We exist for him, for his glory. And so we should long to be with him, long to know him, long to be like him. Advent is an opportunity for us to pause and remember that and look with anticipation forward at his return. And so I just want to encourage you in this season that we a lot of times say there's a lot of hustle and bustle. There's Black Friday deals and Cyber Monday and all the Christmas stuff and all the family and all the things going on. And let's just be honest for a minute. The last year, a lot of those things we weren't able to participate in. And so there's something deep within us that just longs to be able to come back into these moments. And just as one of your pastors, one of my fears for you, but also for me and my family, is we get so busy trying to get back to what was that we miss the God who is that we miss the God who came to save us that we just sang about. Advent is a time to pause, refocus our hearts, refocus our mind, refocus our time, our families back around what matters. It's time to remember. But secondly, it's an opportunity to reaffirm, to reaffirm that Jesus is the one and only Savior. And my assumption is for most of us in this room, we'd be really quick to affirm, oh, that Jesus is God and Jesus is the Savior. But I don't know if there's ever been a time in my life where I've seen so much distortion about who Jesus is. Is he God? Is he man? Is he just an example? Who is Jesus? And so over these coming weeks, we just want to get back around what does God's word say about Jesus? Not what does culture say about Jesus. Not what do we think Jesus should be like. No, what does God's word say about who Jesus is? And how should we respond to him? And then third, we want to refocus our families and our lives around the priority of family discipleship. One of our core practices as a church is we equip our families. We believe that discipleship and disciple-making begin at home. And not just until a son or daughter graduates and goes off to college, we believe that the home, the family, is meant to be a place where making God known and glorifying Him should happen at all times and all seasons of life. How many in this room have a family? Anybody in here, you have a family? All right, some of you, we might need to talk later. So, yes, everyone should be able to raise their hand. Like, we all have a family. God's Word's really clear that in every season of life, we have a gospel responsibility back to our families. And so this series and all the resources our team's been working really hard to put into your hands are designed to help you prioritize your family and and your investment in your family, whatever stage or walk or place of life, to bring the gospel back into those conversations. And Again, if we can just be honest for a minute, we recognize that that season during COVID, it, it gave us some time back with our families or with our children. Maybe some of the things that we were pursuing got stripped away, but in our uh, effort and desire to kind of get back to normal, many of us have kind of lost those rhythms of putting Jesus first in our homes, putting Jesus first in our conversations with our kids, with our siblings. And So this is an opportunity for us to say, no, during December we're going to change our priorities. We're going to begin refocusing our lives, our time, our energy back around Jesus. Amen? That's a good place for an amen. We want to refocus our time, our lives, our priorities, our money back around Jesus. There we go. There, we're getting better this morning. So that's why Advent, that's what we're diving into, and that's why I encourage you to pursue over the coming weeks alongside this church family. So without any further ado, let's just drive straight into John chapter 1. We're going to be in the first several verses over the next few weeks, so I just want us to begin in in verse 19 with the story of John the Baptist. This is what it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him then, Well, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they've been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet... That this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard it, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, we've got this beautiful picture of this man named John the Baptist whose ministry was growing and famous, but his ministry didn't exist for himself. His ministry existed to point others not to him but to the Christ. And the people in John's day, they were living with anticipation and expectation, looking for this person, looking for the good news that the Christ, the promised one, the anointed, had come. And so you can tell why there's some confusion here, because John's ministry is pretty spectacular and things are happening. And so they're asking, are you the Christ? And he's saying, no, that's, that's not me. I've come to point to someone else. We love to get good news. That's one of the things we love about Christmas. Good news and gift giving and news of people coming. But sometimes uh, when we give news, uh, sometimes we get some things wrong. I, I always feel like whenever I'm in this passage, I need to admit some of my own mistakes in this. A few years ago, I was serving in our student ministry and I was sending an email out to our student leaders and... Um, I was just trying to let them know about some of the things that are coming. They were expecting this email. They needed some of the content was there, and I was trying to be super encouraging to them, but also give them the clear they needed. And I sent this email, and in my, my rush to send it, uh, my my little um, sincerely line got changed. I think we have a picture of it, and so I sent this message. And from me, it says, "I'm the Christ, Paul." you can't see it here, but if you could zoom in a little further, it says this message is sponsored by Tri-Cities Baptist Church underneath it. And so apparently my autocorrect thinks I'm a heretic and just wanted the whole student ministry to know uh, what, what, what it thought. And so what I want to tell you this morning is the message that John the Baptist is telling us in this passage. I am not the Christ, but there is one who is, and his name is Jesus. And that's our big truth this morning. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one who was foretold to come. He is the savior that the world was waiting on, that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they were longing and looking for. He is the Christ. And there were many that came along the way that people thought, well, maybe it's David, or maybe it's Solomon, or maybe it's Isaiah, or or maybe it's John the Baptist. But John is very clear to tell us this morning and to tell them, no, I'm not the Christ. I've come to point the way to the Christ. Just want to remind us, John 1:19, and this is the testimony of John, who when the Jews sent priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then in verse 29 and 34, John makes it really clear. The next day he saw Jesus coming and said to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's saying, No, it's not me. Don't look at me. Look at him. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, verse 34. And this is one of the primary purposes of the gospel of John. Well, how do we know that? John 20, verse 31, the Apostle John tells us why he wrote his gospel. He says this: But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, I have good news for you this morning: Jesus is the Christ. It's good news. There is a Savior, there is a promised one who's come to rescue us. His name is Jesus. So the Apostle John wants us to know two very important things from the life of John the Baptist. First, that John the Baptist was not the Christ. His ministry existed to point people away from himself to Jesus. I love the question in verse 19, if you have your Bible open. They ask him this question and they ask, Who are you? That's a really important question. And I want you to notice, how does John answer that question? He doesn't answer it by telling everyone who he is. Instead, he answers the question by telling them who he is not. Can we just pause for a second? Just a really practical point of application. We tend to want to tell everyone who we are. I think that Christian life is about telling people who we're not. It's not about me. It's not about you. We live in this Western American society that's all about building our lives and building our brand and building our name and building our family and building all these things. That's not what John was about. He was about pointing people away from himself to the one name that matters, the one name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Instead of answering who he is, John answers with who he's not. I am not the Christ. In verse 8, earlier on in chapter 1, he talks about that he's not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. Do we live in this way? Are we quick to point people away from ourselves to Jesus? So John wants us to know that John the Baptist was not the Christ. The second thing that he wants us to know is that Jesus is the Christ. And I mentioned this earlier, but I just want to say it again. In our culture and in our world, there's a lot of confusion about what, who Jesus is and why he came. There are some that want to pull apart the humanity of Jesus. Say, Jesus is just God in a shell. And they dehumanize him. Others want to pull the divinity out of the sun. He was just a man. He was a godly teacher. He's someone that we should live like. He's a good example. But Scripture says something else, that He is the God-man. He is fully God. He's fully man. And we'll get more into what that means over the next coming weeks. But He is all God, all man, who came to die for your sin and my sin. And in our culture, we must be very careful. There's so many spiritual leaders who are trying to divorce the Christ from Jesus, to say that Jesus came to make you a better version of yourself, or Jesus came to help you find your true self, or Jesus came to be an example of how you're to live. Well, yes, Jesus is an example, but he's so much more than an example. He is the Son of God who came to die for your sin and my sin, who came to glorify God, who came to redeem a people who would follow him and live for him and bring glory and honor to God with their lives. So here's the question for us this morning. Are we living like Jesus is the Christ? So two really important questions that I want to try to answer while we're together. First is this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? We've said he is the Christ. That's clear. Scripture's pointing. Well, what does that mean? And secondly, how do we respond? So first question, what does that mean? Three big ideas, very quickly. The first one is this. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Look with me in verse 23. So they are asking John about who he is. Verse 22, they ask him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and it is looking what is the way of the Lord it is the coming of the promised King it is the coming of the Messiah it's this coming of one who will rescue and deliver his people from their sin and John was the Baptist was meant to go before Jesus and prepare the way prepare hearts point people to him Jesus is the promised Savior and this promise is one that we see running throughout the whole Old Testament. Old Testament, he goes on and he says, "Who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie." Meaning this Christ, this Messiah, he is above all, he is greater than all. He is worthy of all worship and worthy of all praise. He is the promised Messiah. And this promise of a Savior, this promise of Messiah, was all throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples. Genesis 3.15. There's a promise that a Savior's son will be born of a woman. He says, God says, I will put enmity or I will put warfare, I will put uh, difficulty between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's talking to Eve and he's saying, there's going to be a son born of youth looking forward to the virgin birth and this son is going to be wounded by satan the snake but he's going to crush his head it's this promise of a son who's going to be born of a woman who's going to come make all things right in genesis 12 we see a savior son will not just be a blessing to a family or a nation but to all the nations it says, and I will make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and curse those who dishonor you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God speaking to Abraham, that through Abraham and through Abraham's son and the son that's going to come in, all the nations, all the people of, of the earth will receive a blessing through this son. The son is going to make a difference in all the world. In Second Samuel 7, we know that this son is going to be a king, but not just a king, he's going to be a king that's going to sit on an everlasting throne. God tells David, For from the time that I am appointed judges all my people over Israel, I'll give you rest over your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. Talking to David, talking about his family. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers and I will raise up for you an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this son is not just going to be born of a woman. The son's not just going to be a blessing to the nations. He's going to be a king. But he's not just going to be any kind of king. He's going to be a king on a throne that reigns forever unlike any who's come before him or any who will come after him. And then the prophet Isaiah talked about how this son is not just going to be a son of man. He's going to be the son of God. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these are just a few of the pictures, all of these promises that this Savior, this King, this blessing to the nations, this God-man is going to come. And then John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. Verse 34. He is the promised Savior that all of our hopes are found in Jesus Christ. But He is not just the promised Savior for Jesus to be the Christ, we also see in this passage that the second big idea is this, that Jesus is the Spirit-filled Son. He is the Spirit-filled Son. Look at verse 32 with me. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, talking about God, to baptize with water, the Father, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So one of the signs of the Messiah was that He was going to be, or the Christ, is that He would be the promised King, but not just the promised King, promised Savior, He would be the Spirit-filled Son. That the Holy Spirit would come and descend on Him. And the key word here is remain. That at Jesus' baptism, when John baptized, and we read about that last year in our Matthew reading plan, the Spirit came and descended on him and remained on him. And that's unique because in the Old Testament, most of the time we see the Spirit mentioned in the Old Testament, it's just in momentary action. The Spirit came upon David, or the Spirit came upon Samson, or the Spirit came upon Saul. And it's this moment-by-moment empowering that we see. But now in Jesus' ministry, the Spirit comes and stays. And this is one of the signs that the Messiah had come, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who is filled with the Spirit. This is important. He is the one who fills his people with the Holy Spirit. Spirit Spirit-filled people that we see answered on Pentecost. This picture of the Holy Spirit coming. He is the one, John says, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He will fill others also. And this was promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. It's a promise for God's people of what's to come. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And look at this, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so one of the promises of the Christ is not just that he would come be a savior of his people, but that he would come and fill his people with God's presence that God's presence would not be limited to a tabernacle, a physical place where we would have to come and sacrifice, but God's presence would live inside his people. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) That is an amazing reality, that God has not just come to save us, God comes to live with us. What an amazing thought. A sinful, broken people that God would make a way not just to save us, but to come and live with us. To come and fill us. To come and be with us. And what does Emmanuel mean? But God with us. He's not just the God who's distant, the God who's out there somewhere. God comes and dies for our sin, but then he comes to live within his people, to be with us. No one could do that except the Christ. No one could do that except the Messiah. But he's not just the promised Savior, and he's not just the Spirit-filled Son. Third, he is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world takes away the sin of the world. How is that possible? Because Jesus came as the sinless man, the sinless son. and He lived the sinless, perfect, holy life before the God the Father, where you and I have sinned, and we have given into our brokenness, and we have been hurt by others, and we wound others, and we are broken from the inside out. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on the cross to pay your sin debt and my sin debt. He is the Lamb who came to die for our sin. And we see this picture all throughout the Old Testament. Passover is a picture of this. Where God's people in Egypt were called to slaughter a lamb and put the blood above the doorpost, so that the angel of death would come by and see the blood, the sacrifice for sin, and spare the people. Or in Leviticus chapter 16, where the day of atonement, God's people would bring a lamb and that lamb would be slaughtered and its blood would be shed on the altar so that the people could be cleansed from their sin. That Jesus is the true and better lamb. He is the one all those promises find their fulfillment in. His blood was shed for you and for me. That we might become right in God's sight. There's no other person throughout human history who could be the sacrificial lamb other than Jesus, the Son of God. There's no one who can meet God's righteous requirement besides God Himself. There's no one who can bring right relationship between a holy God and broken people except God Himself. So God became man, fully God, fully man, and He died for you and for me. And his blood was shed so that we might be set free and made right with God. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the promised lamb who would lay down his life for our sins. And this promise we can see in Isaiah 53. Talking about Jesus, the sacrificial servant son. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment or chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, we have all gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the lamb who was slain for your sin and my sin. Jesus was not a good man, just a good man who did some good things that we should model our lives after. Jesus is the Christ, the promised one, the Spirit-filled Son who fills people with His Spirit, the sacrificial Lamb who died in your place and in my place. And friends, one of the things I fear for us, many of us who've grown up in church, who've grown up in this area, that this news, this good news of the gospel has become old news. That's become a story that we believe instead of the truth that we build our lives around. So how do we respond to this reality that Jesus is the Christ? Two ways. First is we turn and we trust. We turn and we trust. We turn from our sin. We trust in Jesus. It's repentance and faith. And this is what John the Baptist came to do. He came to baptize and preach a message of repentance. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. For some of you this morning, that's never happened. You might believe that Jesus is God. You might believe things that are in the Bible. But you've never turned from your sin and trust in God. He's never become your Savior. That's your response this morning. Then for those of us who are Christians, the Christian life is a life of constantly turning from our sin and trusting in God. That there are some things in your life right now that you're trusting in instead of Jesus. And this is an opportunity for you, for me, to turn from my sin and to trust in God. But a second response for us this morning, for those of us who are Christians, is this. To embrace insignificance. I wish we had so much more time to unpack this, but as you read this story about John the Baptist's life, John is constantly pointing people away from himself back to Jesus. And if you look, and I would encourage you on your own to go to John 3, verses 26 through 30, there's this encounter between John the Baptist and some people, and they're saying, hey, everyone is leaving you and is following Jesus. And John says, that's my joy. John 3.30 says, he must increase. He must become more. I must decrease. Friends, are you living that way? We have been put on this planet to become less so that Jesus could become more. To not live for our story, not live for our family, not live for our fame, but to live for the glory of Jesus alone. And for many of us, we're buying into the lie that we exist for ourselves. Life exists for us and our pleasure and our joy. No, we exist for God. And this passage this morning is an invitation to your heart and to my heart to embrace insignificance so that we might point others to the one who is significant, to the one who is worthy, to the one who matters, to Jesus, the Christ, the promised Savior, the Spirit-filled Son, and the sacrificial lamb. Would you pray with me this morning? Fathers, we come to a time of response to sing, to celebrate the gospel. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you'd help us to be a people who turn from our sin and trust in you, to see you as the Christ. Even as we sang this morning, come behold the wondrous mystery. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes. Pray that you would help my brothers and sisters, that you would help me, that you would help our church, that we would be a church who gladly embraces insignificance, who gladly points other people away from us to you, to build families, to build lives that are not about our name, our fame, our glory, but about the one name that matters, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you as Savior and Lord. They know you as a historical figure. They know you as a system of belief, but they don't know you personally. They've never experienced God coming to live inside of them. Lord, this morning, please open their eyes to see that you died to save them. Help them to trust in you. You are worthy of our worship and our praise. In Jesus' name.